FDBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is Political Rewind. If my voice sounds a little unfamiliar, don't worry. You're in the right place. I'm Kevin Riley, the editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and today I'm filling in for my good friend, Bill Nygut. Well, we've got an awful lot to talk about today. We've got huge news at maybe one of the best-known brands in Atlanta, CNN, plus a huge legal case that has implications for journalists. We'll catch up with the legislature and political news around the state. So let's jump into things. Joining me to discuss all of this and more, first, let's welcome Margaret Coker, Editor-in-Chief of The Current, a not-for-profit independent newsroom based on Georgia's coast. Welcome, Margaret. Hi, thanks so much. Before we get to the bad news, Kevin, let me just uh, remind readers that they should go to thecurrentga.org, sign up for our environmental newsletter, because this week, We have some good news. We're watching whales off of Georgia's coast. The 13th baby whale has been born and spotted, and um, everyone can can go read more about the family units who um, are mammal friends who are right now in our Atlantic Ocean. Well, thanks so much for that positive news. Obviously, a birth is always positive news, so thanks a lot, (laughs) Margaret. Next, we welcome Crystal Dixon, my former colleague at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, now with Axios Atlanta. Crystal, it's good to see you again. Thank you for having me. It's good to see you, too. We also have Riley Bunch, public policy reporter for GPB News. Thanks for joining us, Riley. Thanks for having me, Kevin. And maybe you should consider a switch to radio in your future. (laughs) (laughs) We'll see. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm kind of busy with that other job of mine, but thank you. Uh, <laughs> and finally, we have a special guest for uh, the early part of our show. And I just have to be honest, he I really consider this guy my lawyer, but I don't want you to worry. I'm not in any legal trouble that I know of. But joining us is Tom Clyde, who's a partner with uh, Kilpatrick Townsend here in Dayton. And he'll he'll help us understand that that Sarah Palin uh, defamation case against The New York Times. So, Tom, thanks for joining us. Good morning, Kevin. It's uh, thank you for having me. I look, I'm, I'm happy to be here. It's good to see you. Um, all right, before we get into anything else, the big news is Jeff Zucker, the top guy at CNN, is out. The announcement came yesterday, uh, and top brass from CNN is in Atlanta this morning explaining to folks who work for CNN uh, here what is going on and uh, what's going to happen next. But it, it comes right, Margaret, at a very, I would just say, very demanding and perilous time for CNN. Yeah, there, there's, um, it's, a, it's a really interesting phenomenon right now in terms of America, where we're out with our democracy. You know, journalists, uh, the word journalist has, has um in some some a lot of people's minds across the U.S., it's lost um, it's lost the 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 trust the brand um, of trust that it used to have. And CNN has been a favorite network for a certain part of America's spectrum, and there's other networks who are favored for other parts of America's spectrum. But 
when you have a someone who sits at the top of, of a news organization, no matter what part of the political spectrum um, that, that the audience share uh, they have, you know, you, you have to help um, engender trust by, by your own personal actions. And it seems like Jeff Zucker um, broke some rules. And, and so he's out. And that sends people like all of us on the panel into, um, into a frenzy. Um, I'm not sure for uh, my family members who uh, live between Oklahoma City and, you know, Green Bay, Wisconsin. I'm not sure whether they really care about this this morning, though. Yeah, I do think there's a little bit of uh, inside baseball here, uh, but you know CNN is at a at a crucial point with uh, launching its CNN uh, Plus service, with uh, the uh, spinoff that's going to happen. So I think there's a lot of concern, and um, we'll have to follow this story. It'll be interesting to see what comes out of those uh, meetings with people on the staff um, down at CNN headquarters today. But let's move on to uh, this legal case, and I'm going to get uh, Tom Clyde into this conversation. Uh, I'll, I'll try to summarize as best I can and, that, and then let Tom explain a little bit better what's going on. Sarah Palin, the former uh, vice presidential candidate and uh, former governor of Alaska, has filed a defamation lawsuit against the New York Times in federal court. And... Many people thought that when she first filed the case, it would be quickly disposed of. But that hasn't happened, has it, Tom? It hasn't happened. It's, it's now at the stage where uh, it's reaching trial today. Even as we are on the show, the trial should be begin, beginning just this morning. Um, and uh, essentially, it will be a very important trial from a cultural perspective as well as from a legal perspective. Uh, it's it's a big challenge. It's, this is reporting. Uh, it was really an editorial that was published by the New York Times uh, and James Bennett, the then head of the editorial page, was involved in writing it. And unfortunately, that editorial had a significant error about Sarah Palin uh, and her pack. And so that issue is going to be a challenge for the New York Times to overcome in front of a jury of 12. So, Tom, you know, uh, explain a little bit about why it's so unusual for a uh, lawsuit like this to go forward. Because those of us who work in the media, um, one of the things we recognize is just how difficult it is for uh, what we refer to as a public figure. Or, or a politician is usually what we mean by that, but it, it can include many others. It's just so hard under uh, uh, the law in our country for uh, someone like a Sarah Palin to file a lawsuit and be successful. That's exactly right. So Sarah Palin is sort of a quintessential public figure, a, a politician and major presence in American culture and politics. Uh, the burden that she has to meet, and that was set by the New York Times versus Sullivan case in 1964, is she's going to have to demonstrate that the New York Times published with actual malice. And that means that she has to demonstrate that the New York Times, in particular its editorial page editor, Jen, James Bennett, uh, knew that what he was writing was false when he wrote it. And, and essentially what he wrote in an editorial was that there was a direct link between the shooting of Gabrielle Giffords and uh, the publication by Sarah Palin's PAC 
of a map in which the map had crosshairs over uh, 20 congressmen that were being targeted basically by the Republican Party to try and uh, take those districts. Um, There was a lot of controversy about the map. There was a lot of criticism about the map. But in fact, before the New York Times editorial was published in 2017, it was basically demonstrated there was no connection between that map and the decision by Jared Loeffner to to open fire in Tucson. And so that was a mistake that James Bennett made when he put that information into the editorial. And that was a mistake the New York Times corrected. Now at trial, the burden will be to demonstrate that that was a knowing mistake, that that, uh, that James Bennett knew he was making an error and, and published it anyway to make the editorial more provocative. So I'm going to come back to you, Margaret, and then see uh, see where Riley and uh, Crystal want to weigh in as well. But this case has got our attention, despite uh, you know the the law and the nuances of the law maybe not being uh, very uh, common knowledge to probably a lot of people listening. But I mean, our our concern is that there's this been this invitation both in our culture and our politics and in particular by a couple members of the Supreme Court to to sort of revisit that landmark case New York Times versus Sullivan so um, again Margaret it's not a not a, a a time when people are feeling very good about the media yeah I'm I'm gonna take a couple steps back and and um, try not to take up a, too much time um, but I think it's it for for everyone listening this morning it's important to understand if if you don't recognize this already you know um, our American Republic is founded on this very um, this very rare and and precious um, ideal which is we are a republic of engaged citizens and the engaged citizens of our country choose who um, who who rules us we we elect people and in order for that to happen the way that um, our founding fathers and mothers wanted us to is that we need trustworthy facts and that's why journalism has been written in, um, written in as one of the, the foundations of, of our democracy. Journalism has, since the beginning of our country, been the, the way in which that, that trustworthy facts comes to the citizenry. And there is a huge debate uh, about whether or not journalists deserve that moniker anymore. Are we trustworthy or not? Can you trust what what, um, what you hear on the radio or you read in the newspapers or in your inbox every day? And journalism has been expanded to include uh, entertainment news and financial news and not just political news. And so this is a, this is a really big uh, barometer about how Americans are going to be able to get their news and whether or not we can trust the people like us on the panel today who um, are in the profession of providing that for us. And, you know, I have lived in a lot of different countries around the world, including countries that have uh, very, very loose laws about the way in which uh, journalism and libel and defamation are adjudicated. But um, here in America, it's it's been a real strong bastion about uh, the freedom through which we, as journalists, have been able to um, uh, to pursue our craft and our profession. And right now, America needs trustworthy journalism more than ever. So, one would hope that through the thicket of the New York Times's legal travails, that we might actually start having more in-depth debates about about what news organizations and which sources we can trust with our information. 
So, Riley, um, I know that, of course, none of us here um, are really legal experts the way Tom is, but it is routine uh, for someone like you who covers the legislature uh, and politics to write stories that make people who are the subject of those stories angry, right? Yes, and I think that, you know, both the situation in CNN and this pending lawsuit really put some uncertainty in the future for local journalists specifically. You know, I, I talk about this a lot, but when um, massive national news outlets go through kind of turmoil like the CNN is seeing right now, it trickles down to the impact of the relationship between local journalists and their communities, right, and the communities that they cover, the trust they have there because of these media outlets have such a, a big big presence in the public and then you know taking it to this lawsuit it, the outcome of this can bring up some concerns for local journalists will it be easier to be subject to these kinds of lawsuits if you're doing digging into things that politicians government entities don't like right so it, we can talk about the fate of fate of journalism the state of the industry all day and it, it really has a huge impact on local journalists trying to do their jobs you know, Crystal, you are one of those local journalists, both uh, uh, as you worked for us at the AJC and other jobs you've had, including the one you have now. Do you feel that sense that people uh, are concerned about whether they can trust you? Oh, yeah, of course. Um, just maybe two months ago, I actually had someone ask me, do I, you know, with my articles, do I um, insert my opinion in my articles? And I had to tell them, you know, no, I'm an actual journalist. I'm not an opinion piece writer. So um, I think, you know, number one, there's a lot of, you know, still misconception about what local journalists do and um, whether or not a lot of our writing depends on um, whether or not we can insert our opinions in, uh, in our stories. So I think, you know, whether or not, I think this case is also going to have implications on whether or not people um, can trust us to still not do that. Um, I think um, it's one of these things where, it's like a waiting game, essentially, to, to see if um, we're, we're going to be able to have, um, to see if we're going to be able to build those kind of relationships with our sources that allows us to get the stories that we need to, I guess, tell, tell the public what's happening in their own community. So it's sort of like a wait and see game right now, I think. Tom, I'm going to give you the last word. I know, because I've worked with you all these years, you, your career has been built on uh, helping media organizations uh, do the right things, um, pay attention to uh, responsible journalism, and occasionally maybe defend news organizations. I mean, give us something we ought to pay attention to as this case proceeds, or something that is very much on your mind. So I'll give you a couple of thoughts. Um, I think there's a lot of discussion in the legal community about whether this is the right journalism uh, to fight a legal battle over. Obviously, this was an intentional error. I mean, uh, you know, an error. They're arguing it was an intentional error, but uh, there's a lot of question whether this is a fight that the New York Times really needs to have right now. But the, the case is going forward. And, and the concerning part is, even if Sarah Palin loses at the trial court level, she already has the lawyers uh, on staff and, and, op and watching this case to bring it to the appellate courts, and, and they're clearly angling to make it a vehicle to take it to the United States Supreme Court and try and overturn uh, New York Times versus Sullivan and the actual malice standard. Two justices, uh, Justice Thomas and Justice Gorsuch, have already indicated 
in dissenting opinions in other cases, that they are open to potentially removing the actual malice standard. So this case, it's, it's going to be a fascinating at the trial court level, but it's also potentially going to be a very important case at the appellate court level in the years to come. Thanks, Tom. Uh, we're going to give you the last word on that, and also uh, we're going to let you go because I know, again, you're a, a busy lawyer as we move on to other topics, but thank you so much for finding time for us this morning. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. I appreciate the opportunity. It's time for our first break, so we're going to fit that in. When we come back, we'll be digging into the latest developments in the Georgia legislature. You're listening to Political Rewind on GPB. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Political Rewind. I'm Kevin Riley, editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and I'm filling in for Bill Niga today. Back with me, we have Margaret Coker, editor-in-chief of The Current, Crystal Dixon from Axios Atlanta, and of course, Riley Bunch of GPB. So the Georgia legislature is at it. It's almost hard to keep up uh, every day. Uh, you, if you're online, you've got to keep hitting that refresh button to see just what's going on or what they're into next. So we're going to pick a few uh, a few hot items and and keep our eyes on our computer screen to see what 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 else we may need to talk about. But uh, Riley, the um, the governor has gotten behind what he's calling a parents' bill of rights for schools, and it looks like. Uh, Lots of other people are behind it, too. So what's that bill really about, and, and what does it say? Well, first, I would preface that if anyone wants to see, you know, education policy at its height of politics, this would be the session to watch, right? We have so much legislation that has to do with education policy being pushed kind of on partisan levels. But this specific bill um, from the governor that was uh, announced yesterday, uh, you know, championed in both chambers by his floor leaders, is dubbed as um, legislation to increase transparency of the materials, um, textbooks, curriculum that kids are, you know, being taught in schools. So this bill really pairs with a bunch of other legislation we're seeing, you know, legislation that has to do with critical race theory, legislation that has to do with banning obscene materials. Those go a little bit more into the topics and materials. This bill is specifically for parents. It sets up kind of a procedural process where parents can request um, to see, you know, the, the all the curriculum that their kids are going to be learning that year, and it, it gives three-day timeline for um, uh, administration to to kind of, you know, give these materials out. But also, it can be extended to 30 days, so they have a little bit more time than that. But it, it gives parents this pathway to directly seeing what their kids are learning in school as opposed to, you know, their kids coming home and telling them about it, right, you know. And this bill coupled with the other education kind of curriculum bills we're seeing, critics say that it puts a chilling effect on, you know, what is being taught in schools, what teachers feel are being taught in schools. Are they going to become after if they're not teaching the things that parents want? Um, and this, this is going to be a battle we see in multiple pieces of legislation this session. So, Crystal, you have just a ton of experience covering local school boards uh, around Metro Atlanta. And uh, what what do you think this bill says about what's going on and, and you know, what you've witnessed in, in, I think, some of those board meetings? 
I think this shows that, number one, that there is a uh, lack of uh, trust um, some parents may have of local school boards um, and you know, school district leadership. And I think this also is sort of an extension of um, some parents uh, may are now realizing um, or may now take an interest in what their kids are learning due to the COVID-19 pandemic, where a lot of parents had to, um, I guess, uh, act as teachers. So they're now able to see, you know, what their um, what their students are learning in the classroom, and you know, some parents, depending on um, how they feel about certain subjects, they may raise objections to that. One thing I do want to point out is that you know this could have a ripple effect to where teachers may become a bit um, hesitant to talk about certain subjects in the classroom. Um, you know, this is Black History Month, and um, you know, teachers may have. They, they may have to sort of shift gears as to how they approach certain subjects when it comes to Black History Month. You know, when teachers may want to talk about the Tulsa uh, race massacre that happened 100 years ago, um, they may be hesitant to teach, to teach that subject because um, parents may raise objections to a teacher may explaining why, you know, that, that massacre happened. So this could have a lot of, this could have ripple effects in how teachers approach subjects, and they may just, decide to not even teach certain subjects at all. So, Margaret, um, we know that there is just a lot of politics around um, uh, schools right now. We know how that played out in Virginia, for example, in the governor's recent governor's race. But we also know that uh, a record number of teachers are saying they're looking to leave the profession. So it just seems like a, a time where it could be risky to increase let's just call it the requirements. I mean, I don't want to say demands or anything on teachers. I mean, I know people have different points of view about this stuff, but it certainly does require more from teachers than perhaps they, they do now. Yeah, I, I'll preface this by saying that I am a byproduct of public schools. Um, everyone in my family have gone to public schools. So this is something that has been, you know, a real strong thread of, of my existence. The belief that public schools are a force for good in America, not a force for bad. And that um, that assumption of mine is is definitely, uh, you know, being tested by by the amount of bills that that are um, that are coming through the legislature right now uh, that take aim at the public school systems. I've never met a teacher who doesn't want to share more about what goes on in his or her classroom with parents. I don't understand that, um, that you know, the impetus of this bill um, makes it seem like there, there is some sort of blockade that parents, parents can't get information when they want it. I mean, I, as, as a journalist, um, I, I, I always, I'm looking for information too. And, and, you know, even though Georgia has very strong open records laws, sometimes the laws uh, don't mean that, that the people trying to get that information to you can do it in a timely manner. Sometimes that's because they're understaffed. Sometimes it's because they're malicious. This parental rights law seems to just enshrine or tell parents that they also, um, as citizens and residents of Georgia, also have that right to ask for information. I'm not sure that it actually changes anything on the ground. But for a teacher, yes, a teacher who, um, who isn't paid very much, let's face it, for, some, for a teacher who's, who's also gone through, you know, as a person, two years of the same COVID anxieties and fears that we all have, to now have to do something else on top of their daily duty of keeping their children safe in schools, keeping their own children safe at home, and now, um, now trying to figure out the best way forward in a very contentious, hyper-partisan atmosphere that education has become in Georgia. It's, it's definitely going to be tough. 
Um, and Governor Kemp seems to try to be having it both ways, giving teachers a raise and then also sort of adding to their workload um, at the end of their already busy days. I think also um, I want to point out that this legislation uh, spell out if schools are going to be required to respond to these requests or will it be district offices? Because, you know, having a principal, having to, you know, the principal has to deal with, you know, hundreds, several hundred kids a day. They're having to manage their uh, teachers and their other staff. You know, this kind of places, an un I guess, a burden on these, uh, these local educators at the school level that they're going to have to find time to respond to these requests. I mean, you know, will you know, will they be given leeway? Because, um, you know, Georgia, the Georgia records, open records law indicates that they have to respond within a certain amount of time. So um, what happens if they don't respond in a certain amount of time? It just leaves a lot of questions open to um, how this is going to affect, you know, schools at the local level. I think part of, you know, that, Crystal, is it would built within these pieces of legislation, there's these levels of where you can appeal things, right? So you can request, um, and, you, and we see this in the Parental Bill of Rights and also in the bill that talks about obscene, quote, obscene materials. You can request it from your, your local administration, and if they don't really kind of live up to the expectations of the timeline and the standards, it can be appealed to, you know, school mm -hmm. board, right? So it's these different levels, which also creates kind of this um, atmosphere of concern, right? That, that, that these requests and these um, objections to what are being taught can escalate from outside of your school to um, higher levels of the education system in Georgia. And, I, and going right. back, just I want to highlight specifically one point that Margaret said. Um, it really truly is this contradictory um, kind of thread from Governor Kemp right now. I know there was a piece in the AJC, I think it was, I believe it was an editorial piece not too long ago that talked about how he is pushing these kinds of legislative efforts that are concerning for teachers, but also going, you know, touting his campaign promise of the teacher pay raise. I, I just think that's really important to kind of look at how these different things are playing out. So, Riley, moving on to another issue that's also uh, controversial and, and I think even hard sometimes to understand what's going on, um, the, the transgender bill, which I know you've been covering and made a priority in your coverage. So step back from that a little bit and, and tell listeners what the bill is, what's going on, and what the politics around it are. So we've actually seen this bill before. Um, and, it, and we've seen it across the country too, pushed by you know Republicans in other states. And it, it is a bill that targets transgender athletes, and it lays out um, in Georgia, you know, Georgia law that it bans the schools from competing against other schools who allow transgender athletes to compete. Right, and it, it also sets up kind of a grievance system that can be escalated to court. You know, if a school plays against another school that has a transgender athlete, it can be escalated to a lawsuit even. And I think what's different about the legislation this year, and it, you know, it gives more of a prospect of it moving forward, is it's backed by Governor Kemp's floor leaders, right? And we've seen this bill before in the House, and it hasn't had much traction because it wasn't really pushed or sponsored by um, higher-ranking lawmakers. But now we have um, in the Senate, you know, higher floor leaders from Governor Kemp who are promoting this legislation. And I think that's what makes it different and gives it, you know, a better shot of moving forward this session. 
So, Margaret, this this kind of bill just puts Georgia right in the middle of the culture wars. And this issue, which is emerging across the United States, um, is is super hot. I mean, where do you think it really leads in Georgia? Yeah, uh, just to, to put a statistic out there, last year I, there were over 30 states, maybe 33 states that introduced um, transgender bills that were meant to curb uh, the, the participation of transgender um, uh, students in, in athletics. And so, yes, Georgia's joined the bandwagon. Um, I'm, I'm not sure... I'm not sure that, well, I, you know, I'm, I, I, um, our news organization and um, myself, you know, we cover coastal Georgia. I haven't had a single discussion over the last year from any of our readers or any of my neighbors um, who think that this is an issue that is in their top five priority about how, how they as Georgia families are trying to um, improve their lives. So I'm not sure what the impetus is for this coming into um, this session of, of the state legislature, except for just pure political points. And when Governor Kemp is fighting a difficult primary season, I think this is probably a, a really good illustration of how national politics and personal politics uh, get in the way of good governance in Georgia. Um, having said that, every child should feel safe um, when they go to school, and every parent should feel like their child is also safe going to school. So I don't mean to minimize you know, some of the actual anxiety around the issues both for transgender children and for parents. But I just don't see um, how this really um, this, this should fit into the priorities of, of what um, we want our elected officials to be doing right now in Georgia. So where does it lead? I think it leads to um, to a energized Republican base. I think it leads to uh, you know part. Uh, it's it's a tactic in part of a larger battle for the primary season for the governor's race, and um, and I hope that it that the outcome isn't that it makes children less safe when they go to school every day. Uh, another topic in the legislature, Crystal, and one that you've been reporting on is this whole fight about uh, redistricting, local redistricting, uh, in particular in Gwinnett County, although Gwinnett's an example of, 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 I think, a larger story. So again, same thing. Uh, it's a little bit hard to understand if you're not deep into it. So step back for listeners and explain what this is about and what's going on. So essentially, um, redistricting typically is um, considered local legislation, meaning that um, these, I guess, redrawn of county commission and school board maps typically go through le legislators to represent a particular county. Um, they're typically, you know, given the okay, and um, they're typically just it, it typically fell through the general assembly. Um, what we're seeing is these these bills that are being introduced that that legislators are trying to get these bills, I guess, to go through the, the, the General Assembly altogether and just sort of bypass the local legislation um, process. This is interesting because, you know, these bills, um, it, according to Democrats, it looks like, uh, well, according to Democrats, the legislation that's being drawn up is that it attempts to minimize their power. You know, essentially, for example, the making of the Gwinnett County, the proposal to make the Gwinnett County School Board um, races nonpartisan, you see that um, the Democrats argue that that's just a way to sort of, um, I guess, to sort of shrink the power that the, that the Democratic majority on the school board has. Um, 
you know, it's a very interesting process in that it's a very interesting process in that um, we haven't seen this before. Um, this is a new, um, I guess, this is a new way for uh, legislators to sort of introduce legislation. And I think it's going to be interesting to see uh, where these bills go um, in the next, in the coming weeks. Riley, there's really not much to slow these bills down, though, from what we can see. I mean, the Republicans uh, dominate the legislature. If they're going to, um, you know, that idea that uh, Crystal mentioned where there's local control, in other words, whether it's a bill like this redistricting or whether it's like the Buckhead Cityhood thing, there's a tradition in the legislature, right, that the uh, representatives the legislators who represent those areas affected will carry the bill or represent the bill, write the bill. But that's only a tradition, right? Yeah, and also it's only a tradition of, quote, local control when it's local control, right? You know, that's one of those buzzwords we hear at the Capitol. And and it's true. Republicans hold the majority. They're going to pass what they want to pass. And I think it's really interesting because we haven't had this redistricting process, as Crystal mentioned, to see kind of the impact at the local level during the legislative session this year, right? Because we're seeing um, Republicans take advantage of this kind of extra little step that they have, this extra process to kind of keep control on a local level when we see Democrats making these big gains. And it's especially poignant in in Gwinnett County, right, that flipped in 2018 and has this growing non-white voter base um, to see Republicans kind of targeting their um, commission maps and and their school board as well. You know, that Chris mentioned there was another bill that made the school board uh, or, yeah, school board nonpartisan is really interesting to see kind of the trickle down effects of that special session we had for redistricting last year. But Margaret, I mean, uh, isn't, isn't, wouldn't some people feel like, hey, there's great wisdom in a school board uh, and the uh, races there being nonpartisan. At that level, why are we caught up in ideological politics, right? I mean, that wouldn't that be an effective argument? I, I think it is an effective argument. And, you know, there's other nonpartisan um, races uh, in, in Georgia as well. Our, you know, district attorneys are, are technically nonpartisan. Judges are supposed to be nonpartisan. So I, I think that's, that's, a, that's a great talking point. I think that it is also sort of facile because um, voters know uh, what side of the aisle um, the people that they're electing usually fall on. So that's if, if we're into, you know, performance, uh, performance driven politics, that's a great thing to 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 install. And I, and I, I don't know that anyone would be against it. But the realities are quite different in Georgia. You know, we we are a divided state. We are a competitive state. We are a purple state. And so whatever the technical language on your ballot is, you're, if you are an informed citizen, you're, you're going to research who, who those people are and you're going to vote accordingly. So I think what we need to do is probably take, you know, on a local level from school boards on up, take, um, take more classes about civility and consensus building. And uh, everyone remember that democracy, it's not a spectator sport, but it's also not supposed to be a blood sport. We're, we're supposed to try to figure out our way through our differences to, to serve the common good. Some people, I think, might argue, too, as Republicans maintain control of the legislature and, and obviously the key constitutional offices. But in a changing state, they may be uh, hanging on to their last uh, last bit of power. So I do think the Democrats make a good case when they say, well, why now? 
when we've had it this way. Uh, as Riley pointed out, uh, Gwinnett County, uh, control of Gwinnett County really flipped over on the commission on the school board in many ways, and that county is somewhat typical. We know some things have gone on in Cobb County, obviously, and some other places. So over time, this looks like it'll be a It'll be quite the fight, and we'll have to keep a, keep an eye on it. Um, hey, I, I think it's time for our last break. Um, and when we come back, we're going to talk about just how much money Georgia political candidates are raising. A few other topics if we have time for them. This is Political Rewind on GPB. We will be right back. Welcome back to Political Rewind. I'm Kevin Riley, filling in today for Bill Nygut. With me are Margaret Coker, Crystal Dixon, and Riley Bunch. Uh, so we're going to dig into uh, almost uh, anything we can, but let's start here. Um, fundraising for the big races in Georgia. Uh, our Greg Bluestein reported, uh, I guess it was, I guess it was, yes, yesterday, that Stacey Abrams has raised more than $9.2 million dollars. Uh, since she entered the race for governor, and so that pace uh, puts her, you know, at a, at a, I guess, a higher rate of fundraising than Governor Kemp, who's who's also got to raise money because he's got a brutal primary to get through. Uh, Margaret, I mean, how much money uh, can people spend, and how much is going to be needed? Yeah. Wow. Um, you know, if only if only we could get a fraction of that um, of that campaign uh, money just to I don't know you know fix my side paneling or go on a vacation. Um, yeah. So so how much money does it take to win a race? Uh, Georgia's going to break some records. It seems like I you know it wasn't so long ago in 2020 when we were all just marveling and rolling our eyes. You know, you couldn't spend all the money that had been raised um, by candidates. You know, all of the TV spots had been had been filled up. All the radio slots had been filled up and campaigns were had money left over, um, you know, in, in their chest. So, you know, I'm not sure I'm not sure what that nine million is going to get, Stacey, at the end of the day. Is she going to be able to carve off a few more votes um, among uh, a middle-class suburban um, Republican women? Is she going to be able to convince a few more uh, black men to come to the polls who didn't in 2020? I guess that's what the campaign strategies and, and the highly paid campaign strategists are going to try and figure out. Um, you know, there are highly paid people who will help her spend that money, but I'm not sure to what end. You know, Riley, uh, Margaret points out that uh, it used to be how much how much money can you raise to dominate television advertising, and now um, there's a real thought process that that's not enough. Um, so, do you think that the money will be invested in in the ground game? In other words, getting your voters out seems to be the thing to do now, right? Well, I mean, that would be the smart thing for Republicans to invest their money in, that's for sure, because they have had this, you know, they're up against Stacey, the Democrats' long-term ground game that has gotten to them to this point today. And I think there's also, we have to take into consideration, you know, the national level of Georgia politics now, right? There's so many things played. This is when I wish that I was here to cover the 2018 governor's race. I wasn't, but kind of seeing the differences back then to now we have Stacey Abrams, who is this high-profile national 
figure, right? She's not just this Georgia politician anymore. She has this national level of recognition. And then Kemp has some new things working for him as well. He has that new law passed last session that allows him um, incumbents to bring in a little bit extra cash, right? So if I were, uh, you know, giving Republicans advice, it would be in the ground game and and, um, trying to catch up to the long-term efforts that Democrats have built here. Well, you know, to to emphasize your point in this morning's uh, jolt, our political newsletter at the uh, Atlanta Journal-Constitution, we we look at uh, uh, Democrats. And so consider this uh, to read from it. At this stage in the 2018 cycle, the state Democratic Party had about $420,000 in cash. Now the party has roughly $1.7 million in the bank. So even the Democratic Party, which was uh, you know not so long ago, right, Margaret? We knew that the, the party couldn't didn't seem to have any money in the bank. So things have really changed. And um, I don't know, Crystal, I mean, uh, do you think we'll see things on the ground be different uh, in 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 Metro yeah. Atlanta or around the state? I think we're going to see a lot more organizing. We are going to see a lot more get out the vote campaigns, especially in the suburbs where Democrats saw, um, quite a few gains in 2020. I think we're going to see a lot of, uh, you know, efforts in, you know, middle and South Georgia, where Democrats also um, gained some uh, points uh, in the, the last election cycle. I think we're going to see a lot. It's going to be a lot of national attention. And I think we're going to see this effort to, you know, get out the vote and, uh, you know, use volunteers to sort of convince people who sat out the last election to uh, maybe come around this, this year, later on this year. So it's definitely going to be an active political season through the rest of the year. And to jump on that really quickly, I think that we're also going to see more investment from Democrats in the down-ballot races. That was in your jolt this morning as well, as we have down-ballot Democrats that are also raising high numbers, right, where uh, maybe in the past the Democrats were kind of shooting for what seats they could get. They they have kind of this, you know, energy, and I think we're going to see that in the down-ballot races too. Well, it, it just seems like there's no end to this fundraising, both in uh, the cycle of raising the money and it being constant and the amount of money every year. It seems like there's a record. Um, so let's move on to another topic. And, uh, Margaret, we're going to need your help here because the Ahmed Arbery case continues. We thought we had a plea agreement in the federal trial, but that, let's just say, did not work out. But can you, again, step back for listeners and explain the difference between the state trial, the federal trial, and then what happened with this plea agreement? Yeah, so um, here in coastal Georgia, of course, there was the high-profile trial last fall that, uh, that convicted three Glen County men, uh, Greg McMichael, his son Travis McMichael, and their neighbor, William Roddy Bryant, they were all convicted of murdering Ahmad Arbery as he was jogging through their majority white neighborhood on February 23rd, 2020. The sentencing for that state um, case happened on January 7th, and we are just about to start a federal case. The federal case was brought um, soon after charges were laid by the state of Georgia, and the federal case is about hate crimes. 
Georgia at the time that um, Ahmaud Arbery was killed didn't have a hate crimes law. So the federal government uh, jumped in and wanted to try to convict the same three men of, of killing um, Arbery because, uh, because he was black and because, out of racial animus, as the federal hate crime statute says. So as the sentencing for the state murder trial was coming through, um, the federal prosecutors that are being led by the Southern District of Georgia, a prosecutor based here in Savannah, um, and the Department of Justice's Civil Rights Division, they were approached by the defendant's lawyers for the federal case, and, um, and they, the defendants were trying to get a plea deal. Um, that plea deal at the, at the start of January was rejected straight out. The prosecutors and the Arbery family uh, said no. And just this week, again, in Brunswick, as the, at, the, at the federal trial um, uh, at the courthouse, the, there was a second plea deal that was brought. And the Savannah-based U.S. attorney accepted that plea deal, but the Arbery family was very, very much opposed to it. And so what we saw was something extremely um, unusual and highly uh, extraordinary in that um, the Arbery family's uh, um, opposition to a plea deal for this hate crimes conviction um, won the day. And the three defendants who are already murderers will already be serving licenses in a Georgia state penitentiary are still their conviction about this hate crime is in limbo. And why this is so extraordinary is because, as our reporting has shown this week, only 1% of hate crimes uh, that are investigated um, ever, ever make it to trial. And convictions are incredibly rare. So for the Department of Justice to have a conviction in hand, to have these three defendants who are already convicted of murder, to have them go down in history as racist murderers, not just murderers, um, this conviction is in limbo and, and we're not quite sure what's going to happen next. You know, there's been a lot of great reporting on this story, uh, obviously from The Current and from others around the state. Our Bill Rankin, uh, in his story that we published uh, in print this morning, said that, um, and I'll just read from the story, the development surprised people, but lawyers who often appear in federal court said they can understand why the judge did what she did. The plea agreement re- reached between the Justice Department lawyers and attorneys gave the judge no leeway as to what the sentence could be. So now the case is complicated by, you know, it's supposed to start, I think next week, right? I mean, go to trial next week. Mm -hmm. And all these people who are gonna be uh, potential jurors know if they've, you know, paid even a little bit of attention, right? That these guys were ready to take a guilty plea. And the question was really just about punishment because they wanted to go to federal prison, start and basically serve almost all of their sentence that way because the belief is that it is a safer place for them. And the Arbery family objected. The the judge decided not to take the plea. And this painful case uh, just goes on and on. And um, it is, uh, I think, just continues to raise and perhaps create a, a good awareness of how the system works and um, the challenges in the system on both sides, but very rare for a plea deal in federal court to be, um, let's just say, messed up somehow. Right, Margaret? I mean, that's your point. 
Yes, and um, just to add a little bit, uh, another layer of precision, the plea deal involves uh, Travis and Greg McMichael, the father and son. It did not include William Roddy Bryan, the third defendant. And so tomorrow there'll be um, one more hearing before the trial formally starts. And in tomorrow's hearing in Brunswick, the McMichaels will have a chance to either rescind their plea uh, of, of guilty um, or um, and go to trial, as the third defendant will, starting Monday, or um, what we think is going on behind the scenes is another 11th hour uh, um, plea deal arrangement in which uh, the judge is consulted within this process so that the judge will have a say in what the sentencing will be. And uh, the, the intricacies of the federal statutes that arrange plea deals tied her hands. Um, so the plea deal would be set at 30 years in a federal penitentiary. But um, the judge, uh, the judge says it's just way too early in the case for her to feel comfortable with that sentencing um, um, uh, arrangement. And of course, there's an, a whole lot of documentation that's still under seal that is going to show, um, uh, allegedly show, a habitual use of racist language, racist thoughts, racist motivation, and all of these things could be very explosive as the trial gets going next week. Well, thank you for that insight. I know how how demanding reporting on this case has been in uh, newsrooms around the state and the current has really stayed on top of this as, as the AJC has too. Um, so Riley, moving on to another one, we're, we don't have too much more time left, but so Governor Kemp wants to spend over $400 million on rural broadband, an issue that people have been talking about for years. So uh, is that enough and is it going to work? Well, I'll see how quickly I can talk about this because rural broadband is the issue that continues to be an issue forever and ever and ever, right? And that's exactly to your point is, is this going to work? So he's pouring a lot of federal COVID relief money toward entities around the state. And I believe his office said that it would connect about 130,000 homes. Whether this is a reality, we will have to see how exactly the money is spent. There wasn't a ton of details on it, but rural broadband is just something that they got to figure out, you know, they got to figure it out one of these days. Well, and one of the, I think, concerns that we'll see is uh, they're going to make the money available to, uh, I think, local governments, local electric cooperatives, uh, cable companies. And um, sometimes, as we've seen in Georgia, um, though not all those entities are as good at uh, creating and maintaining that uh, Wi-Fi, so... Well, uh, that's, uh, that's the last topic we're getting to. So thank you, Riley, um, because that's all the time we have for Political Rewind today. Uh, I've got to thank these great guests, Margaret Coker, Crystal Dixon, Riley Bunch, and Tom Clyde. Also, thanks to producer Sam Burmes-Doss, senior producer, I'm sorry, senior producer Natalie Mendenhall, and engineer Jesse Nicewanger. Bill Nygut will be back tomorrow to host Friday's show. Political Rewind will be on video tomorrow, so you can watch it live on gpp.org at 9 a.m. and on GPB TV at 7 p.m. I'm Kevin Riley. Thank you so much for joining us. Stay healthy, get a vaccine or a booster, wear your mask, and please have a great rest of your day. We'll see you soon.